Welcome to the Behind the Drapes podcast. I'm your host, Kenny. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Harish Lekhamwasam, who's one of the anesthesiologists in our department. Harish is somebody who really showed me all the different places anesthesiology can take you. Harish did his training at MGH, where he did a critical care and a cardiac fellowship. And after working there for a few years, he then went to Arizona to join a private practice. While he was at Arizona, he was one of the chief innovative officers and then also was a big part of their acquisition by a larger company. Towards the end of his time there, he then started working for a company out of Cleveland um, where he became the chief medical officer of that company. Harish is somebody who has shown me that anesthesia isn't something that you just have to practice in the hospital, but you're also a very valuable uh, member to the medical device or the medical technology community at large. Harish also works for our department and is voted commonly every year since I've been at the residency program, the top 20 attendings in our teaching awards. He's someone who I'm very interested to hear how his career has progressed from working inside of a hospital to now putting most of his energy outside of the hospital and how the work that he's doing is impacting thousands of more patients than he could have ever taken care of in person. So without further ado, let's see what's going on behind the drapes with Harish Lekhamwasam. All right, cool. So how's your weekend going? Very good, thank you. Great yeah. weekend. Yeah. Were you were you out of town and then just came back into town? Yeah, yeah. I was traveling, um, and I just got back last night. So nice, nice. Yeah. Where were you coming back from? Cleveland. Okay. The, the usual, the usual haunt. Nice, nice. That's yeah. where Talis is based out of. Yeah, exactly. They picked exactly. a fun place for you to visit and travel to. <laughs> Especially during the winter. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's lovely at that time of the year. So do you catch most of the Boston games? Do you, do you use uh, like NBA League Pass? No, I mean, uh, because there's a, a NBC Sports um, has, you, you know, because of, of our uh, cable subscription. And the proximity to Boston. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, because as long as, if, even even if it's, I mean, the Celtics are so popular now, it's really not a big deal. You know, there's no competition from the local media. So, so far it's not been an issue picking him up wherever I am. Nice. Yeah. I was watching, I was watching along that fourth quarter. It was like a little close for most of the fourth quarter. And yeah, then, then they kind of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The Nets, the Nets really aren't anything too impressive. I mean, yeah. yeah. If they ever get it together, they can be good, but you know, you wonder with those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Too many big personalities, I think. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Are you from Boston? Is that kind of where your Boston fandom comes from? No, well, yes and no. I mean, so I, I grew up in Sri Lanka, went to school there, and I came to Boston for college. And so I've been in Boston a long time, and that's where I first, you know, really started following and understanding basketball. So that that's really where the whole thing started. And that kind of stuck all the years. Is there any popularity for basketball in Sri Lanka? Not really. I mean, it's more, so I grew up playing cricket and rugby, uh, you know, basketball. We had a, a court, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of a, a major athletic event. Mm -hmm. And Sri Lanka is kind of an interesting place because you have like multicultural, um, sort of melting pot, kind of like America, <clears throat> but even more so there. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, so Sri Lanka was a, um, back, back, you know, hundreds of years ago, it was a major trading post because it's right in the middle of the Indian ocean. So it was sort of at the intersection of a lot of trade between the Western countries and the East. Um, but it, it's a predominantly Buddhist country, 
you know, because Buddhism in general, is, it's not a religion, it's philosophy, right? So for the longest time, we didn't have any religious uh, sort of separations between the, the various populations. There's those, there were Buddhists, Christians, Muslims. Um, but then, unfortunately, over the last sort of 30 years, there have been rifts forming around, around ethnic lines. They're not, not religious hmm. lines, but sort of more based on ethnicity. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's like everything else. You know, that, that, that was the reason, that's one of the reasons that drove my coming to the U.S., you know, many, many years ago. But like everything else, it's, it's, you know, money and politics and power and people get leveraged, you know, for right. all kinds of uh, unfortunate reasons. Right. So how does, uh, how does like a young high school grad from Sri Lanka find their way to MIT? Out here? Uh, a lot of luck, I'd say. <laughs> uh, so when I was, when I was in high school, I got into medical school um, out of high school. So Sri Lanka is is part of the Commonwealth. And the Commonwealth education system is very different to the US. So when, when you're in high school, you get to, you have to decide if you're gonna do, you know, medicine or engineering or, you know, accountancy or whatever it is that you're gonna do. Um, and then you sort of get farmed out very early on. So when I was in, in 10th grade, so that was when I was 16, um, I decided I wanted to go to, med to medical school and, you know, uh, I did so that, so in, in 12th grade, you're supposed to do this, uh, entrance exam to the universities. <clears throat> and then I got admission to the, to the local medical school, but there was a huge civil uprising right around that time that was rooted in the universities. So the government basically shut all the universities down. Hmm. There was a, there was a lot of civil problems. There was bombs going off everywhere and, uh, you know, people are getting drafted into the military. It was, a, mm. it, was a, it was a bit of a crazy situation. And then, so my mom, um, and my mom is a singer, so I have a single parent. And my mom at that point decided it was unsafe, you know, for an 18-year-old kid to be kind of floating around, you know, right. especially without university to go to. Possibly going to get drafted into this. Possib possibly, you know, there was a lot of, you know, there were protests, you know, there's a, there a lot of, things that could have happened that could have been dramatically altered my life. And, yeah. you know, she, uh, she decided it was time to get out. And, uh, you know, what most people back at that time, just in the late eighties would go to, uh, the UK or Australia, but it was very expensive. And my, my mom didn't have a lot of money to pay for that. So mm -hmm. I, I applied to the U S primarily because the U S was very generous in, uh, in offering uh, scholarships for mm -hmm. kids that deemed, uh, you know, needy slash deserving. Mm -hmm. So I got, uh, I got, uh, the first place I had heard from was actually, was from MIT, which is that was pretty crazy. I got a telegram from the guys and then they interviewed me over the phone <laughs> and, uh, that, that I got an offer and I was like, all right. Um, and then, you know, so I showed up in the fall of 1989, pretty crazy. Yeah. How, how did you find medical engineering knowing that you wanted to go to med school? Like, where did you, how did you make that connection? So I didn't, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, I went into medicine uh, from high school because it was sort of my family business. My, you know, my parents, my grandparents, everyone had been uh, physicians in, in Sri Lanka. So I sort of did it because that's sort of what people did, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure, sure you can relate to the whole <laughs> 
that's sort of Asian way of things. Right. Um, but I, but I really enjoy math. And one of the downsides in the, in the, the sort of the British education system, at least back then was that if you opted to go into medicine, you essentially stopped any technical learning. You know, it, it was all, you know, biology and zoology mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. So when I got to MIT, um, I had the chance to sort of reset everything that I wanted to do. And so I decided to go into sort of primarily mechanical engineering because I sort of enjoyed tinkering around with things. Mm-hmm. And then I, I met during my uh, second year, <clears throat> and I was hundred percent going to be an engineer. Through my second year, I met uh, a guy who turned out to be my mentor for the large part of my adult life. And he, he happened to be the head of the Harvard MIT medical school, like a combined medical school that uh, it's sort of a, a, a program within the Harvard medical school that, that, mm-hmm. that he had helped start. Mm-hmm. And I, I had no idea of any other stuff. And, you know, so I, I got to working with him and we got, we got pretty close. And then once he heard about my background, he sort of convinced me to fuse um, to fuse pre-medical requirements into my um, engineering curriculum. You mm-hmm. know, and, uh, back then MIT didn't have a biomedical engineering uh, discipline per se, mm-hmm. so I, I did sort of uh, my own um, kind of weird hodgepodge major with, you know, uh, mechanical engineers called course, course two. But then I did a lot of the other things that, you know, you'd want to do if you were looking into do biomedical engineering. And I worked a lot, actually worked at the uh, MGH uh, biomedical engineering lab, which, which was one floor away from uh, the department of anesthesia. So I got to meet a lot of anesthesia people there. Cool. And, uh, yeah, and then along the way, he, he sort of taught me into applying to this combined medical program, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a sort of a nice way of going full circle, mm-hmm. which I did. And so I got in and, uh, you know, kind of uh, went on from there. What was the setup that you had there? Cause it, did you also get a master's in mechanical engineering at MIT? I did. And was that part of the combo of getting into med school or was that? No, 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 no. Uh, no. So, so he, uh, I mean, so he felt very strongly that stopping, uh, engineering at a bachelor's was a huge mistake. Uh And he really, he wanted me to do an MD PhD. And I was like, listen, I, I, I I can't, Uh, there's no way I can do that. You know, I got, pick one or the other. So we, yeah. so we compromised on a master's and he, he basically the way I did it was, um, I took a year off between undergraduate and, uh, my medical school. And that became my first year of my master's. Okay. And then I combined my second year of my master's with my first year of my medical school. So I basically okay. front loaded all of the classes during my, for my first year and mm-hmm. did a lot of my thesis writing during my second year. Mm-hmm. while i was in med school got it which uh which is a little crazy i mean Sounds I, wouldn't, busy. I wouldn't uh i wouldn't recommend that approach but it, you know in retrospect you know a lot of the things that i do now were based on that sort of foundation 
Yeah. Yes, I'm very, very grateful to him for uh, sort of putting the squeeze on me and making me do that. <clears throat> yeah, I think we all kind of need people in our lives, especially around that age, to force you to do things that you wouldn't normally want exactly. to do. Exactly. Because nobody wants to work harder for something you no. can't see where the fruits are coming from. No, when you're 20, you know, 20 something years old, right? You have no perspective. You have no idea right. everything that's possible ahead of you. And I think you need people that understand, you know, this great big future of possibilities and kind of, mm -hmm. you know, push you to do, you know, the smart thing. Yeah. How to set yourself up for sort of any opportunity that comes your way. That's right. So was it the uh, working for MGH where you first discovered anesthesia? And is that kind of something that's stuck in your head all throughout <laughs> medical school then? Yeah. I mean, my mom's, uh, my mom's a cardiac anesthesiologist. So I oh, was, cool. was uh, exposed to some of the, some of the anesthesia stuff, uh, excuse me, I can't understand this. So, mm. so I was exposed to some of the anesthesia stuff from an early age. But yeah, I mean, I got to meet a lot of the people at the MGH during the time I was I was an undergraduate and graduate student, um, because the uh, at that time the anesthesia department was full of people that were working on sort of biomedical engineering type concepts, mm -hmm. and some of the people in the department of biomedical engineering was were uh, the pioneers in a lot of the OR safety things. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of uh, crossover between the two departments. And mm -hmm. uh, and when I went to medical school, I decided to go into anesthesia primarily because you know, I felt like it's an area where there were a lot of devices um, mm -hmm. and uh, you know things that I thought were interesting to work on outside purely clinical practice. Mm -hmm. When you were going through like your fellowship training and even residency, was your mom like very curious what cardiac anesthesia looked like in the U.S. compared to Sri Lanka? Yeah, I mean, very different, right? I mean, third yeah. world, you know, yeah. in terms of the the facilities, the things that are available, very different. But yeah, I mean, you know, it was, uh, it was, uh, I think it was, it was interesting. I mean, I think she she was happy that I sort of went in that direction. Yeah. Um, and it was always nice to sort of connect and discuss things. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I was talk I was talking to Devignan recently about yeah. um I forget what we were talking about. It might have been the start of like gas analyzers in the operating room, but do you it seemed like that time when you guys were training, there were a lot of new technological advances in the operating <clears> room. <throat> do you remember any major technological advancement that shifted how anesthesia was practiced during your residency? I mean, the, the, so so it's inter so the, the thing with anesthesia is it's interesting, right? I mean, I, I feel that there was a lot of innovation that probably predated my starting for a while um, around safety. You know, uh, pulse ox was obviously the big thing, gas analyzers, train of four, things like that. Um, but I also feel in that same breath that we've kind of let loose of the strings a little bit, you know, that, that we haven't really pursued that same culture of pushing the needle in terms of using devices and technology to, to really solidify our role in the hospital or, you know, in healthcare in general. <clears throat> um, so I always was, was very interested in, um, in uh, the ICU, yeah, um, and some of the work that that my mentor was doing was um, 
sort of looking to see if there was a role for expert systems in the ICU to deal with some of the problems even back in the you know in the 90s that people were having with ICU care right so this is mm-hmm. this is before AI and things like that but you know even then it was difficult because of culture and you know complexity in places like the ICU mm-hmm. um and you know unfortunately right like i feel that things really haven't changed a whole lot over the last 20 years mm-hmm. in you know and that's not to downplay any of the advances that have been there but i feel like there's a there's a lot of interesting opportunity to innovate you know from a device perspective from a from a, a data perspective and i think as anesthesiologists in general we've sort of allowed other people to step in and do that as opposed to taking taking the lead in a lot of situations who who are you describing as those other people coming in to make those decisions um you know uh cardiologists intensivists uh, uh-huh. surgeons you know there there are a lot of people that are that are looking to do different things Mm-hmm. Um, and even, even, uh, I think some hospital administrators, you know, mm-hmm. out of, uh, pure necessity, mm-hmm. I think are, are taking the lead. Um, and obviously then the technology companies, right. Because, um, over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, there's this massive refocus of, uh, interest, um, from a lot of technology and device companies, because, the size of the market that healthcare occupies in terms of, you know, the proportion of the GDP in the U S which is the biggest market, um, it's it's pretty large. Mm -hmm. It's a huge, huge pond. And a a lot of people are trying to go swimming there at the moment. Yeah. Where does this passion for innovation come from in your career? Is it from the mentor that you've been alluding to? Because it seems like as I was looking at your CV, it's like chief innovation officer. You started an interest group, I think, at the University of Arizona. And it seems like innovation has just sort of always been a core value to your profession. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I like solving problems. And, um, you know, and... I guess the great thing in healthcare is there's a million problems at all, right? There's no no shortage of problems. So when I left when I left the MGH, I went to this very large private practice group in Arizona, and I really for the first probably two three years I I didn't do anything other than being a doc, you know, which which is kind of nice, you know. It was no responsibilities. I just go, you know, do the best I can in terms of taking care of patients and come home and you know just spend time with with the family but then after a while intellectually you start you start getting bored you know and start looking around and seeing the tremendous inefficiencies in in how medicine is run yeah and so even there i just started uh i just started sort of fixing things that i felt were within you know arm shot to do yeah simple stuff nothing nothing crazy but then when you start fixing simple things, you know, you start realizing that a bunch of simple things now get tied together and there's a more complex thing that needs to get sorted out. And you, you, you know, you kind of get sucked in. And, uh, so that turned out to me working pretty closely with the CEO of the company. Um, 
And a lot of the work, at least then, was around a revenue cycle and operational improvements because, you know, when you're in private practice, making sure that every um, piece of work that you do is accounted for and that, you know, revenue capture happens efficiently mm-hmm. is, is pretty important. Mm-hmm. So we worked on a bunch of that stuff. <clears throat> and uh, then there was a, uh, a computer science engineer. Uh, she's a software engineer uh, also who joined that group probably maybe four or five years after I joined. And, you know, we were working on things in parallel and then our CEO kind of combined us together uh, and sort of let us loose doing sort of helping manage the practice. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was very productive. It was very, um, it was very lucrative to the group. uh, to the point, you know, where, where the group was acquired by a, a larger entity. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, the two of us got to work a little bit with the, um, innovation group, sort of, uh, m- more the IT group of, of this larger entity. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, you know, it, 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 it's sort of a different culture when you're, I mean, we were very large as an independent group. We had about, uh, 300 something doctors, about 50 CRNAs. Um, and we, we were staffing about 50 facilities around mm-hmm. the Phoenix area. So pretty large. Yeah, it's pretty big. But yeah, but then we, we joined this massive entity. You know, mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's not easy when you get integrated into a large group <clears throat> and mm-hmm. there's a pre existing IT infrastructure. And you know, sometimes larger entities don't have the same priorities as a, a smaller group does and are, are definitely not as nimble for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I think it became clear to me that, you know, the kind of stuff that I wanted to do was not possible within this new structure. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of started poking around different things and then I got introduced to this small startup out of... Uh, the Cleveland Clinic, and uh, you know, started, started working with them, and you know, I'm, st- I'm still with them. It's still, it's a little larger now, um, and um, you know, but it's uh, it's a lot of fun. It's great, and cool. uh, yeah, and I, I still get to work very closely with um, with the. I, I I get to work very closely at the level of understanding the problem and designing solutions. <clears throat> so it, th- that part I enjoy, you know, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not just sort of sitting far, far away from the problem and just managing people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come back to Talis in a second. Um, but c- yep. just rewinding back to that acquisition period for your company, were you in the room when your, your private practice was talking to Envision and were you part of some of that, negotiation process of the uh, like acquiring yeah i mean so so i was part of the the due diligence um a lot of the the technical diligence and uh, a bunch of the revenue cycle stuff um the the you know when when companies get acquired I mean, it's, it's pretty complicated right because they're investment bankers they're lawyers they're people that have discussions um so it's not 
at least that one wasn't sort of two people, you know, sitting in a a smoke filled, you know, boardroom, so yeah. hackling over things. It, it's a, it was a very structured, complex thing that that was negotiated and moved forward. Did it seem over your head at times, or were you like very like you totally understood sort of the logistics of everything going on? No, yeah, no. I mean, I, I think I was very aware of everything that was going on. It was yeah. it was complicated because our group, you know, we had it says like three hundred something docs. There were probably at that time close to two hundred partners, maybe a little bit less, and each partner had an equal vote, you know, and and for the acquisition to proceed, we needed. Um, consensus you know a very high percentage of the people needed to approve of it so it was it was it was tricky for the ceo of the group to negotiate terms that were acceptable to you know a large number of docs right mm-hmm. i mean you, you, mm-hmm. you met anesthesiologists right get 10 of them and you know you can't get them to agree on anything right and and you have 150 plus of them right it's, it's it was it was no small feat that he did that so yeah it was it was a lot of credit to him and these people had been working for a company with you know established expectations for years to decades of time and then to have to shift their expectations from a new company that, that would yeah, be I mean, tough for people i'd imagine right i mean you know it's i think i think it's always you know when you're a, when you're an owner of a company, right? There is a um, there is a sense of control, right? And a lot of people have a sense of ownership and you know connection to the company, right? And then all of a sudden, you now go from being an owner <clears throat> to an employee, right? and right. that's a fundamental change, right? Um, and yeah, so I mean, I think there were a lot of questions, a lot of hesitancies that needed to be addressed before. A transaction with that many, that many voting shareholders could proceed. And it seems like, at least from my glance of like the market right now, this was sort of the start of a trend nationwide of smaller private practice companies are getting acquired by larger companies like Envision um, and other sort of nationwide companies. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think this this happened in twenty uh, what was it twenty eight. 2015 right so a good you know eight years ago and i think at that time the uh the market obviously wasn't what it is now and there was a dream that there would be you know uh scale and things like that that when practices got got essentially laid on to this larger entity that you could generate a lot of efficiencies by taking advantage of a lot of things. Um, you know, whether it's, it, I, I, I think there'd be a lot of people writing about whether things like that actually worked out or not. I mean, you know, it, um, you know, it, it's interesting because things have changed quite a bit over the, the last several years. I'm sure you've seen some of these things that are written about, private equity owning healthcare companies and things like that. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it's, it's quite as hot a trend as it was back then. Um, you know, and who knows, maybe, maybe the pendulum will swing and it'll become super popular again 
down the road. This is an intermission. You're about halfway through the episode. Now would be a good time to take a break, put the podcast down, and come back to it at a later time. If you're really into the episode and you want to keep pushing forward, then just push ahead 15 seconds and keep on going. If you do take a break, you're going to want to be sure to come back because most of the guests seem to save their best for last. And you're not going to want to miss what's coming up next. Were you doing critical care when you were in Arizona? Um, not, not in any meaningful way. Um, okay. in, in private practice, it's, it's tricky to do that because um, the revenue that you can make by doing you know, anesthesia in the operating room really dwarfs any revenue that you could generate from the ICU. And in general, ICUs are always subsidized by something, by an anesthesia department, by a hospital, somewhere or the other. <clears throat> and when you're a private practice company, you know, it it's not easy to to spin people out at a loss. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, so that was always a struggle. Mm-hmm. And so when you had the opportunity to work for Talus and this sort of came on your plate, were you super eager because you've always had this itch for like ICU care and wanting to solve the problems? And you knew that the ICU was a big, big pond of problems to solve. I mean, honestly, the the thing with Talus that was that was really intriguing was the technology. You know, okay. it, uh, so when I started working with them, it seemed that it, it was a technology that was actually before its time in terms of the ability to manage all of these these points of care in, functionally in real time. And you know, it 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 was really. It was really great to work with, you know, the CEO, um, the owners of the company at that time, you know, the core engineering team to take it from, you know, it's, it's very early stages to where it is today. How many people were working at that time for the company? Uh, eight, 10. I mean, it, was, it was very small. How about, how about today, present day? Today we're probably 70 plus. 75 maybe yeah nice and what is your day-to-day role with them so so i work with um so my 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 title is the the chief innovation officer uh he's the chief medical innovation officer and so i work with the engineering teams the legal teams you know the product teams um and basically um prime so there's a thing called product strategy, right? So what, what sort of things you need to have in your product portfolio uh, in order to be able to provide value in all of these areas that we function in. And so you got to sort of make sure that you build products that provide value to patients, first of all, but also provide value to the clinicians that use those products and then that those products deliver this thing called return on investment to mm-hmm. the facility, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, some of those are products that exist that need need to constantly evolve. Some of those are building things that don't exist currently. So, so it really is is working with all these different different internal teams and also working with the clinical leaders to try and make sure that we're constantly um, you know pushing the needle 
in terms of helping people take care of patients in operating rooms and ICUs. What's an example of a product that you could offer to a hospital? Right. So probably the most, uh, the most uh, popular product right now, uh, there's two sets of things. One's called remote view ICU. And um, it, it, so remote view is sort of like this uh, super lightweight. When I, when I mean lightweight, I don't mean sort of light on, on content, lightweight in the sense is very, very uh, light on uh, technology infrastructure that's required to be in a hospital, right? So it's, it's cloud-based, uh, small hospital footprint, uh, highly scalable, but it, it functions as a sort of sophisticated ICU surveillance tool, right? So like a tele-ICU platform um, that a hospital or clinical group can deploy their own rules on. So, you know, you can use it to manage, you know, 10 to hundreds of ICU patients scattered across multiple locations while making sure that each of those patients are getting the care that is compliant with your own rules. Right? So in this era of, of uh, not enough intensivists, respiratory therapists, et cetera, um, it's, it's an interesting way of getting at that problem of you know, the supply going, going down, but the demand for these types of services going up. And the companion is a a, uh, a tool that we built for ECMO that does the same sorts of things. That is is specifically focused on patients that require ECMO, which which as you know became very popular during COVID. Sort of uh, less of a demand now that we maybe you know uh, who knows whether we're out of COVID, not thinking about COVID, whatever it is. It seems like we're having less issues with COVID at least in the ICU. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's still a, a lot of interest in ECMO, mm-hmm. and the from a, <clears throat> I think from a supply demand perspective, the problem with all of those, and in the operating room, for example, with anesthesiologists, is that even though there is a projected demand for all of these these highly highly specialized services, the number of people that are actually specialized in terms of delivering those services. Um, are not plentiful, you know. So, so then it really becomes access to those specialized brains, right? Mm-hmm. And and we believe um, as a company that technology can really bridge that gap mm-hmm. um, and sort of help right size that supply demand mismatch. Mm-hmm. So if I can just sort of paraphrase and maybe simplify what you're saying, if I was to be working at the Cleveland Clinic as like an intensivist, I could have this product, say, on a tablet or on my phone where I'm monitoring, say, 20 to 30 ECMO patients and very quickly be able to sense a trend as to which sort of variables I need to change on their management based on what your platform is providing me information-wise? Right, and and I, I think the 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 neat thing about the platform is that the platform allows you to to deploy your own rules. So we don't the platform doesn't have any tools that practice medicine, right? right. So basically, you, you, what what you can say is that you know according to the best practice at my facility, right? That if this and this and this happens. 
I need to be informed about that patient. And then you will get that information and then you can decide, you know, whatever the next step is, depending on, you know, what it is that, that you want to do with that information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a different slant compared to some of the other technologies that will essentially guide you based on their, the, the technical tools of, of that platform. Mm -hmm. Right. And do you feel like hospitals have very different ways that they use these tools? Like do regionality wise, do you feel like it plays a big difference? Yeah. I mean, every, every facility has their own way of doing things. Right. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, if, if I were to say, Hey, I got this, this thing that the Cleveland clinic does, and now I go to the MGH or the Mayo and say, hey, the Cleveland Clinics does this, so therefore you have to do it, right? You, you've, you can imagine how that's going to go, right? right? Because everybody everybody has, you know, a certain thing that they do, right? right? And so our approach to solving the problem is that we understand that, you know, every hospital has a binder full of best practices, right? For managing people on ventilators on ECMO, you know, ERS protocols in the OR, whatever it is, there's millions of these protocols. Right. But the compliance with these protocols is pretty low because people don't get the information they need. Um, and then if they are not compliant with the protocol, you don't hear about that for months down the road, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we built this infrastructure that allows a hospital to essentially deploy their protocols and then really rapidly understand how people are being compliant with those things so that you can really manage processes, right? So it's a, it's a very sophisticated process management tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a very easy way to become more efficient in a way. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, you know, exactly. So, so you, you have your protocols, right? You assume that, that that's the best way to run your, your business of medicine mm -hmm. and then you deploy them and then you kind of figure out, you know, if, if they're good or bad and if they're not good, you change them or if they're good, you sort of deploy them in a, in a larger scale. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I'm smiling because I think most people who are not in medicine just assume that any hospital they go to is just a hospital and everything that they do is up to standards or they're going to get excellent care. But it's it's vastly different. I'm sure you notice it when you visit different hospitals, how vastly different resources can be. Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody's trying as hard as they can, right? Yeah. But it's just that everyone's overwhelmed. And it's, it's tough to get the information that you need, you know, when you need it. Right. I mean, the information like data is present, but either it's buried behind layers of stuff or, you know, there's so much noise, you can't find things. I mean, <clears throat> I don't think it's a lack of effort or a lack of caring. It's just, it's just, um, it's just not easy. Resource driven. Yeah. You know, resources, you know, cognitive overload right you get you get hit with so many data points it, right. it becomes sort of deafening but yeah right. i mean it's, right. it's, it's 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 a tough environment yeah i could see that so i kind of alluded to it earlier but you it seems like you travel quite a bit for your job um where are the places that you're traveling to most besides cleveland um so i travel um to meet with with a lot of the clinical leadership uh, to try and sort of define 
um, you know, the problems that we're going to work on um, and kind of understand the issues that they're dealing with. And that could be, I mean, a bunch of different places, you know, so uh, there are a lot of big academic centers uh, that use uh, Talus that I'll travel to uh, around the U.S., and uh, we're just uh, we're just look in the early stages of looking into getting out of the U.S. So there'll be more travel out to meet with, you know, various clinical leaders and hospital leaders um, in a bunch of different places. Do you like traveling? Uh, <laughs> the actual act of traveling? No, I'm not. A, I'm not a huge fan of. I mean, I really enjoy meeting the various people and. So seeing how healthcare is delivered everywhere, um, you know, because I think when I was when I was in Boston, I was really spoiled in terms of the facilities and the infrastructure. And then I went out to Arizona and saw, saw a different practice. And then, you know, with Talos, I've been sort of traveling around the U.S. and seeing how things are. And I think it really gives you a, an interesting perspective, you know. I mean, <clears throat> so the way I look at this is that Access to healthcare is a is a problem clearly in the U.S. and I think at the same time I think access to access to good quality is also important. You know, I mean, c- certain things obviously need to be done in highly specialized places, but other things you know should should be the same if you get admitted to the ICU with you know a pneumonia that turns into some form of ARDS. Mm-hmm. You know, you shouldn't have to be at, you know, the Mayo or the MGH or the Cleveland Clinic to get care that is defined by best practices. You know, so so it's interesting. I mean, it 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 really gives you a sense of of the opportunity that's out there to try and try and help people. Uh, you know, deliver good care across the board. Yeah, that's so cool to hear because I feel like equitable medicine is something that you hear about in medical school and it's kind of like a pillar of what you think it means to be a physician. And I feel like a lot of people lose that passion once they are done with residency and they get comfortable with their job and they lose that drive to want to provide equitable health care because it, it's hard. There's a lot of factors in play. It, it is right. I mean, and, and the thing is, is there's there's equity in access, right? I mean, so like the actual, do you have a bed, right? Do you know, mm-hmm. do you do you the the actual physical structure? But like, I also feel that there's also equity in the brains of the people, you know. So so like for example, if you're in a network, right? Let's say MGB, right? And there's a super specialized brain that's sitting at one of the, the MGH or the Brigham, you know, and there's another patient in a community network hospital who is sick, you know, and then there's this person that can help them that's sitting, you know, I don't know, 30 miles away, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but there's no technological bridge that mm-hmm. that will combine that patient to that person. I mean, I think... I think that's an issue of, of equity as well, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and I think, you know, that that's where technology can really help. And that's what mm-hmm. we're really trying to do. You know, people are looking at things like hub and spoke models and things like that, but really trying to make sure that, that you can leverage knowledge 
um, and best practices at scale to, mm. to really, you know, help a bunch of people. Definitely. How do you feel like you've been doing balancing traveling with your job and your family life? Um, it pro- probably, you're probably talking to my wife and kids, but, uh, I, I think it's fine. I mean, you know, I think, I think it's good. I mean, I don't like, I don't have a horrendous travel schedule. Right. I mean, and because, you know, my, my travel is more, more, uh, defined mm-hmm. and sometimes I travel because I want to travel, you know, like I mm-hmm. travel a lot to Cleveland uh, the Cleveland area to so that I can be with the engineering team and, and, you know, the product team, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's fine. You know, I mean, I, I, chill, I mean, I just, in general, I don't like being stuck in a plane for a number of hours. Uh, so that's, that's the part of travel that I don't like, but once I get there, I generally have a good time. You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting, you know, and you come back energized because you feel like you feel like, yeah, I can, I can help with that. Right. You know? Right. So now if I've learned that, I was like, Oh man, there's nothing I can do. Probably, probably and when I say more I, right, I'm talking about the company, right. I feel yeah. like, you know, the, the products that, that we're building can really, really help. Yeah. And if I felt that, you know, there's nothing that, that could be done to solve this or to help people solve it, I think probably wouldn't enjoy it quite as much. Yeah. Well, that's a good feeling. I'm glad you have that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's great. It, it's been, I mean, it's, I'd say the last few years have probably been some of the most rewarding experiences of my life. You know, it's, uh, because it, I mean, for me personally, I feel like, you know, some of the stuff that I contribute to will probably impact many more patients than I could have ever touched, um, by myself as a, as a clinician. You know? Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Definitely. I think that's really cool. Um, and that kind of ties into sort of the last part I want to touch on in your career is you have this like awesome portion of your career, this sort of baby project that you've watched grow and you're still very involved in it. Why do you still work in the hospital and why are you still involved in academic medicine? What, what pulls you back into wanting yeah. to still be an anesthesiologist and mm-hmm. a, a mentor and a trainer for residents? I mean, I still like being a doctor, you know, I still, I still like taking care of patients. Um, and I think, I think I still feel like I'm pretty good at it. So if, I guess a, a semblance of arrogance there, but if I, you know, the moment when I feel like, like I wasn't able to deliver the type of care that I feel people deserve, I will probably step away. Um, and I also, I mean, I think it's a lot of fun working with residents with you guys, right? Because, you know, I mean, I think in a large sense healthcare is going to be delivered by you, right. And, and your colleagues, and then to have a sort of a small, role in that and it's kind of fun you know especially when when you get to it's always interesting to to try and understand what what drives the various residents and kind of how mm-hmm. people are looking at the different things mm-hmm. um and then, then honestly it helps me right because i think that when i'm i feel like i i I'm a better at my job for Talos if I understand the problems clinicians are facing. And 
you know, that's not to say that, you know, people that don't practice don't, right? But I, f- I feel like by being in the thick of things, you know, that you you really understand, you know, sometimes how tricky it can be, right? And how technology has to perform if it's going to be adopted and if it's going to get used to actually make things better. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I feel like being in the field allows me to, yeah, it kind of reinforces, right? And and how important it is to kind of, you know, mm-hmm. get things right. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. I love that you work for our department like one week out of the month and you still <laughs> get the open triple A's at the Merriam. Yes, that's right. <laughs> There's yeah, no, know, rest, right? no rest for you when you come here. L- l- luck of the draw. <laughs> <laughs> well, it clearly means you're still talented and trustworthy yeah, enough to handle these these yeah. sick cases. Yeah, no, it's 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 good. I mean, I I still enjoy it, so that that's why I still do it. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been an awesome talk. I've Absolutely. learned I've learned a ton about you that I didn't know from our previous conversations. Great, excellent. And uh, I'm excited to see where your career takes you. I mean, it's inspiring to me to hear that you've sort of found this career path through yourself and it provides so much fulfillment in yourself and what your career has become. Um, So it's inspiring for people like me to want to try and do the same for myself. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear that, King. All right, Harish. Thanks for your time. Anytime. Take care. I'll talk talk to you another time. All right. Have a good night. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Behind the Drapes. If you like what you hear be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can get all the new episodes of the show as they drop right to your homepage. if you really really liked what you hear be sure to rate and review so that other people can find the show easily and also tell a friend so they could check it out too special thanks to all the guests who come on the show and help make my job a lot easier and hopefully make an entertaining time for you guys to listen to we'll see you next time <laughs>